Hi everyone, welcome to Meet the Podcasters. This is James Deeney. My guests today are TT Shudia and Zakia Watley, who host Dope Labs, which is a part of Spotify's podcast network. Dope Labs is founded on the belief that science is for everyone, not just academics locked away in their ivory towers. The show is all about revealing the science behind stories and topics that are trending right now, everything from coronavirus to plant-based meat substitutes, and even vibranium, which is the fictional metal from the Black Panther movie. This is definitely one of my favorite interviews I've done in this series so far. TT and Zakia are brilliant, and I think the friendship between them really comes across in the conversation. And personally, it was just really fun to talk to them about their podcast and also about the intersection between science, society, and culture. In this episode, we discuss how TT and Zakia met and became friends while studying for their PhDs, the story of how Dope Labs became the winner of Spotify's Sound Up program in 2018 embracing and promoting greater diversity in podcasting, the unexpected dangers of conducting vox pops in busy public spaces, why we need to rethink how science is presented in the education system, and lastly, we get into the debate on whether social media is helpful or harmful when it comes to promoting greater awareness and understanding of how science works and why it's important to all of us. As always, you can find all the links to the things we mentioned in this episode on the podcast.co website. So head there if you want to check those out and learn more. But now, let's get into the conversation. Today, I'm joined by TT Shadia and Zakia Watley. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. So as a big fan of science myself and as a former student of science communication, there's so much that I like about Dope Lab. So I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you both about it today. But I thought, first of all, if we could just start off with your own journeys first. So if you could each introduce yourselves and explain how you met and became such close friends. Um, Zaki and I met in grad school. So I started at Duke University in 2010. And Zakia was already there. She had been there for a couple years. And when I got there, I was kind of just like, I need to be as focused as possible to be able to get out of here with this degree. And I just kind of put my nose to the grindstone and wasn't really looking up. But then I stumbled upon this student group that was supposed to be for PhD students of color um, and it was supposed to be a support system. So I went to one of the meetings to meet more people and to grow community. And Zakia was there and she was the president of the uh, that group at the time. And she really just kind of took me under her wing and we became very, very fast friends after that. So like Zakia, were you a student yourself at the time or were you like, had you finished your PhD or? No, I was a student as well. So uh, when TT came there, I think I'd been there two years and yeah, I was a student. <laughs> That's basically, yeah, I was a student at the same time. I was president of this organization. And so I was meeting people that weren't in the same program as me, but also, but we're still in the sciences. So TT was in the school of engineering and I was in what was called the graduate, just the basic graduate school, but I was in the biochemistry and genetics and genomics departments. So like after you two met and became friends and then you, you both kind of progressed and finished your studies, are you both now uh, still like actively involved in researching and teaching and, and that side of things? So we both 
graduated. We didn't graduate at the same time. So I graduated and I was so sad to leave TT, um, <laughs> <laughs> to leave her behind um, at Duke. But I went on to do a postdoc and then TT went on to do a postdoc. And then we both kind of went into our careers, but we're both still in the sciences. So my current role, I am the program manager for the biological sciences graduate program at the University of Maryland. And so I get to work with PhD and master's students every day. And I work for the National Institute of Standards and Technology as a program manager there. So I am basically a scientific auditor. So we go in where I send people into different labs all over the world and assess their their technical capabilities. Make sure that they can do what, what they say they do. Exactly. Because we I, I work for the government technically because we follow the Department of Commerce and so when certain labs want to sell product or sell a service internationally, um, sometimes it's uh, mandated by the government that they go through us to make sure that everything that they say that they're doing is correct. Because, you know, if a lab in Europe says we have these syringes and we're going to sell these syringes internationally and a hospital in the U.S. says we want to buy these syringes and they have a seal of approval from us, they know that. Um, when they're injecting people with medicine, that they will be getting the right amount and there shouldn't be any problems. Yeah, that's high stakes. Uh, high stakes decisions <laughs> being made. It is. Sometimes it's high stakes, but sometimes it's low stakes. Because another <laughs> thing that we also look at, because we look at like thousands of different things. One other thing that always makes me laugh is that we also assess lottery balls. <laughs> <laughs> so well, what do you have the, to assess a lottery ball for? Like, oh, wait, so it hasn't been tampered with or something? Is that it? Yeah, so that it had that they all have a uniform size, weight, and everything like that. Um, because when you put it into those machines that suck them up, if one of its one of them is heavier or lighter or bigger or smaller, that will bias which balls will get sucked up into that machine. So lottery balls. There you go. That's crazy. I've learned something <laughs> new already. Yeah. <laughs> Education coming fast. So basically, you're kind of, you've both got active jobs and you're kind of doing podcasting on the side. Is it, is it difficult to, to juggle those two things or how do you kind of manage the split there? Um, yeah, we're doing it on the side. But I think, you know, with anything extra that you're doing, there's a little bit of difficulty. But I think we actually look forward to it. You know, we try to be flexible with each other's schedules. So TT is sometimes flying out to assess these labs. I don't know if it's syringes or lottery balls that she's checking, but <laughs> she, sometimes she's away. And so we may record at a different time or early in the morning or on the weekends. Uh, she's really flexible when I'm teaching. Um, so, you know, we just work with each other's schedules, but it's a lot of fun for us. And so it doesn't always feel like really, really hard work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think now would be a good time just to talk about Doplaz. I know it was the winner of Spotify's first signed up program in 2018. And I'd love to talk a bit more about the program itself in just a moment. But before we do that, could you just give us kind of like a brief elevator pitch of what Dope Labs is all about, just to give people some context. So Dope Labs is a show that's hosted by me and Zakia, and uh, we are scientists. We have we both have doctorate degrees. And what it does is that it shows the intersection of science and pop culture. So we take what's trending on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then show the science behind it. Yeah, it's like that's such a fantastic concept in that like you're taking what people are already interested in and then, you know, basing the content around that. And I think you know, you can hear in the show itself that the final product um, kind of follows its own scientific method in a way. I think that was intentionally built into the show. But before we, we talk more about the, the production and 
the podcast itself. Could you talk about what Sound Up is, first of all, and then just kind of walk us through your journey of how you entered the competition and then eventually went on to become crowned the winners of it uh, in 2018? (laughs) Okay, so, you know, we're doing our due diligence. We're on the Internet uh, patrolling. (laughs) (laughs) TT and I always are scrolling on Twitter or Instagram and sharing things. And so... Late one night, I came across this, uh, just a post and someone said, you know, oh, Spotify is hosting this sound up challenge where you can apply uh, with an idea for a podcast. And if you're selected, you know, they'll teach you how to develop a podcast. And so it was late in the night. So I said, okay, I'm not going to text this. I'm going to email this instead. And so I just sent the link to TT. With no, I don't think I even added with no subject line, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so it looked like a virus, basically. <laughs> and then, so the next morning, I see it and I click on it and I read the description and it's talking about Sound Up. And so, Sound Up is for specifically uh, women of color um, who are interested in podcasting. So you could have been early on in your podcasting career, or you, you know nothing about podcasting, but you have a podcast idea. And the purpose of Sound Up is to um, increase the amount of women of color that are a part of the podcasting landscape, because there aren't very many. And so she sent it to me with no context, nothing. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I mean, we've been talking about doing a podcast together, like all best friends talk about doing a podcast together. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, Zakia was, it was a really uh, busy time in her life. Uh, she was yes. switching jobs and moving and all these things like that. So I was, I thought to myself, I said, I don't want to burden her with having to go back and forth with drafts and things like that to answer these questions. I'm going to just do my best to capture all of our ideas and send in uh, a pitch. And so I I answered all the questions and tried to really convey what Dope Labs was going to be and sent it in. (laughs) And then Zakia one day, while I was helping her move, she said, did you see on Twitter? (laughs) And I said, did you see on Twitter? Oh my goodness. There's over 18,000 applicants to that program I sent you a couple of weeks ago. There's no way we would have gotten through. Good thing we didn't spend our time, you know, putting something together. You know, I know we (laughs) talked about it, but we would have had to put it on paper. And TT says, I said, well, (laughs) I sent in an application. So we are one of those 18,000. But I think it's really good. I've already taken off work. I think that I think it was very good. I'd already blocked off my calendar. I put in. Yes. I was like, I'm going to manifest this. (laughs) I told my boss I will not be here this 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 week in, uh, in my calendar because I will be in New York. (laughs) <laughs> and and I just went in it went into it with 100% confidence even though it was 18,000. I was like I think it's I think it's a really good idea that there isn't anything else out there like it. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of weeks, we get an email <laughs> saying that yes. they wanted to interview us and then we had an interview and then we got another email saying that we were selected as one of the the top 10 to come to New York. That's insane, like 18,000 down to 10. And the fact that you you booked a week off work in advance, I love that. Um, <laughs> that really captures TT's essence. Yeah. <laughs> 
yes, look, yes. he is in her most concentrated form. You, yeah, <laughs> you, you, you did manifest this, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, we can talk all we want about the scientific validity of thinking positive thoughts. But yeah, you hear stories <laughs> like that and you think, yeah, maybe maybe there's something to it. So when you were on the program um, and you, the, the 10 finalists, what was there like, did you go through workshops and stuff? Or when you got to those final stages, was there stuff that you were learning about how to produce a podcast or what did it look like? when it was just the, the finalists? Yeah, so they had, it was a lot of sessions back to back to back for five days straight. And it ranged from everything from coming up with just like how to say what your podcast is about in a short sentence to uh, storyboarding, through lines, how to speak into a microphone, how to laugh into a microphone, how to hold a microphone when you're interviewing somebody, all the tech that's associated with it. We got to get into a studio and see like people playing around with levels. We learned about levels. We learned about how to give a good pitch, how to make a pitch deck and just fine tune our idea. So we, everyone that was there had an idea, but I think by the end, we were able to sharpen that idea and have like true focus about what we wanted it to sound like who our target audience was and how we want, like what our first steps were going to be to make it come to fruition. Mm, that's great. Cause I think like, yeah, when you hear a podcast, it, it does kind of sound easy, but even just all the list of things that you ran through there, um, even just like the mic technique alone, there, there's so much to, to kind of learn there. And especially if you're new to it, it can seem a bit overwhelming at first, like how can we get all these different moving parts together and make this your reality but it sounds like it was um pretty comprehensive the the course that you went through there yeah it was it was intense like the days were long and it felt everyone was so tired at the end of each day and we they didn't assign us homework but once you learn all that stuff you want to start applying it to your your idea so we were staying up late talking to each other interviewing each other to practice and just trying to squeeze as much as we could out of the opportunity because we knew it was the opportunity of a lifetime. Mm. So are, are you still in touch with anyone, uh, with any of the other people you met through the program? Yeah, definitely. Um, we have a group chat. And so when folks have uh, updates on their podcast, they send it into the group chat. We listen to everyone's like rough cut of their pilots. If they if they have artwork that they are, have been working on with someone say for their cover art, they send it and say, hey, take a look. What do you think? Can you give me feedback? Um, we all trying to support each other as much as we can. There's also, a, we have Facebook groups, not just for the New York SoundUp, but the global SoundUp. So SoundUp has happened in a, a bunch of different countries now. And there have been Facebook groups set up for the global SoundUp so that everybody can use each other as a resource. Amazing. Yeah, that's a great idea. And and you mentioned that SoundUp is responding to the issue of diversity in podcasting and i think i don't know if this is 100 percent up to date but one of the statistics i saw was that only 22 percent of podcasts are hosted by women and even less women of color and since podcasting first started since it emerged in 2005 the initial stereotype was that it was a medium for nerdy white guys who are very technology oriented very similar to the stereotype of what the average scientist happens to look like, funnily enough. But thankfully, I think in the past five years, things have really started to progress and we have made some steps forward in there, uh, making podcasting more diverse and inclusive. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on the current state of diversity in podcasting and what else can be done to continue 
um, making progress in the right direction? Um, you know, I think like you've already called the statistics, you know, we know that this doesn't look like what our real world population looks like. The podcasting landscape doesn't look like our real world population. But I think there are a couple of bottlenecks when you think about it. You have to ask who, if a podcast is self-produced, you need a lot of marketing. And if it's not, like if you're on a podcast, if your podcast is on a network, like we're on Spotify, the folks that are looking at these podcasts and deciding, are you only looking at podcasts that look like you or sound like you or sound like everything else that you're listening to? I do think, you know, that's something that we really wanted to do with Dope Labs was to continue to be our authentic selves. You know, and I think we've even had some feedback, right, TT, from folks saying, you should say it like this, or you shouldn't tell right. these kind they, of jokes or talk this way. Exactly. They they don't appreciate, like, Zakia is Southern, and I <laughs> am from just outside of D.C., and we have our own way of speaking, and they don't, they like, you, it makes you less credible when you talk like that. And I'm like, well, well, dang, we have PhDs. Like, what can take the credibility away? Well, I who, still have my degree. Like, who are these people, like, um, is it just listeners, like, random people saying, like, because uh, who wants to listen to this, like, boring, dry, academic, like... <laughs> That's what yeah, we thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Like, and so if you, if you already are narrowing down the sound you're looking for, right, you're already, whether intentionally or unintentionally, excluding a lot of folks. And so that's the first stage. And then people want to say, well, you know, well, who is listening to you? What we know is that across podcast listeners, most often men listen to other men while women listen to both men and women. So your women podcasters have um, kind of a smaller audience, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're going off of metrics and how many downloads or how popular something is, you have to consider all of these factors. And so uh, I think there are multiple different steps that kind of make us limit who we see as successful in podcasting or who we deem as worthy of having a show. And I think we have to kind of turn those things upside down and turn them on their head and really ask, you know, who has a story that's worth telling or who has a story, period, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, there are a lot of stories out there that are dying to be told, a lot of perspective. I mean, I think just going through the Sound Up program, like, geez, all 10 of us had really good ideas. These podcasts are so good. And they're talking about a, a slice of life that some of them that I had never even considered. And it makes you curious and it, you want to listen. But then when, like Zakia said, you have people who are just automatically biased against you, then no, then they're not going to listen. And I feel like the more we amplify those voices, the richer the podcast landscape landscape gets um, with these really amazing stories that are being told and need someone to just like turn up the mic volume so that everyone can hear it. Mm, yeah, I think that's why Signed Up is so great. And hopefully we'll, we'll see other networks and other, I think there is a realization in the podcast industry that this is an issue that kind of needs to be addressed. Uh, and there are Efforts being made there, but yeah, there's still there's still quite a way to go. So, Dope Labs has just gone into its third season or semester, um, to use your terminology, which I like. And I imagine you've learned quite a lot about podcast production along the way, going from semester one to two and now into three. So, if we were starting from scratch, could you walk us through your your current process of how an episode of Dope Labs is created? 
usually the first step is Zakia sending me an Instagram post <laughs> or a tweet <laughs> or a link to something saying, oh my gosh, did you see this? And then the wheels start turning and we're like, okay, can this be an episode? I think this is really interesting. Or something happens on the news or something happens like in, you know, something that turns really zeitgeisty. And uh, we say, okay, well, we have to talk about this because this is what everyone is talking about right now. And then we go from there. And the next step after that is usually trying to find a guest that will be our expert for that lab. Right. Even in finding a guest, people's, uh, when you think about people who become experts, they become often experts in a really narrow field. And so even though we may start with this big picture or this big question, we then need to tailor our questions to our guests. We need to also think about our audience. So I think one of the things that we try to do is say, not just what are we interested in, but what might our audience be interested in? Um, what's an interesting angle with this guest that we can take with this um, with this episode? And so we try to book a guest and then we have we come up with a set of questions. We interview our guests. Uh, TT always has to tell me that's enough. The guest only signed up for this many minutes um, because I always go off and I'm like, oh, what about this other thing? Um, we're always really excited to talk to folks. And then we take that interview and then we go back through, we comb back over it with our producer, um, Jenny Rattle at Mass from Wave Runner Studios. And we comb back through all of all of the content and we say, okay, here are the meaty parts that we really like, you know, and how are we going to weave our friendship, our lens, how are we going to weave all of that narrative around this interview? So it, it starts with the interview as like the base layer and then the, the kind of the construction of the episode happens around that. I would say so. TT, do you feel like that's an accurate reflection? Yeah, I think so. Um, because sometimes our guest gives us like a peek into that that area of science or their industry that we aren't expecting. And so then we're like, oh, and then it kind of pivots what we want to center the episode about. And it, sometimes it's really surprising. And so we're like, okay, that's great. So then we then start building around that. And I was wondering, like, I know... In semester three, there haven't been many of the kind of Vox Pop segments right. that feature in some of the earlier semesters, obviously because of, you know, the coronavirus situation and what's going on right now. But I, I was listening to your kind of, uh, it was your coronavirus episode. It was a brilliant title of Protect Your Neck. Um, I don't know who comes up with the episode titles, but those are great. <laughs> but I was listening to- Yeah, like, we do. <laughs> I was listening to some of the- um, Vox Pops uh, from that particular episode and it's kind of a crazy time capsule uh, of representing people's views just as this kind of whole thing with the virus was kicking off. So if you are doing Vox Pops, how do, how do you work those into the production? Where, where do they uh, feature? That's kind of changed over time and that's a result of learning, okay? Because initially, we when we first started in semester one, we were capturing the Vox Pops really early on and then going in and having our interview and doing everything after. Well, you can imagine if your arc changes, now you've lost all this time you've spent capturing Vox Pops, you know? And so I think now we've done Vox Pops kind of in parallel with interviews or right after an interview as, as time went on. Also, we have a really great audience who will call in and they'll give us uh, so like our, our Black History Month, um, our Black and STEM episode where Folks called in and gave us these great summaries of what they do, and then we construct the episode um, around them. And so I think we've kind of 
we've things have changed. It's a lot easier for us to do Vox Pops now. I feel like um, that we're not on the now that we're not in the street. People aren't running away from us with our microphones, <laughs> <laughs> or people who really want to be you know, who want to be in the limelight chasing us. And we're like, okay, we yeah. interviewed you. <laughs> oh my God. That was a very scary night. It was, we were on U Street in DC. And if uh, you aren't uh, from that area, U Street has changed a lot over the last 20 years. But it, one thing that has remained the same is that it's all, there's a lot of people on U Street all the time and all night. And because um, there's a lot of bars and clubs and things like that. And this man, he saw us interviewing other people and he wanted to be interviewed very badly and so we were ready to go it was late and he just starts following us he starts yeah, following yes, us as we're say. walking back to my apartment and he's just yelling things out that he wanted to say and so then we had to kind of do a, a light jog away from him <laughs> I won't say we ran away from him but we did a light jog to to kind of get get away from him yeah so that's yeah. uh be aware of the the dangers of box pops anyone else is thinking about doing it be prepared yes. to run if things go <laughs> if things go south yeah, yes definitely. that's right <laughs> so one of the things that i was wondering obviously the chemistry between both of you uh is really good in the show and obviously uh, a large part of that will be due to the fact that you are just naturally best friends but was there anything that you had to iron out in terms of the dynamic between both of you uh, when you got behind the mics initially or was it just kind of something that happened naturally that you didn't have to think much about i think the thing that we we struggle with because when we're talking to each other we get so excited is talking over each other so we'll be talking yes. at the same time and i think the first few times we were recording there was so much tape of us talking simultaneously like saying different things but just talking because that's how we talk to each other normally on the phone or in person <laughs> or on facetime but we realized that that does that's no good because no one can hear either of us and so i think one of the things that we had to figure out was like okay you stop talking i'm gonna say this thing then you talk <laughs> you know just figuring out when to like okay let me stop talking because the key is about to say this thing and like anticipating each other like i feel like i can anticipate sometimes when zakia is going to say something like really good or really funny and so i'll just be like okay shut up <laughs> yeah it's a it's a real art form um I, I suppose it's like with any other skill it just comes with practice like the more times you do it the more you'll kind of be on the ball um with when to chime in and when to stay quiet i suppose mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes and i think also there's another element that is, you know, we have, we do want to give space for our conversation and our friendship, but we, we try to strike this balance on the mic of content that is, you know, scientific content, but also our friendship too. And so sometimes we have to rein each other in um, so that we kind of stay on topic and stay on task. But then mm -hmm. also, you know, it's really, it's really useful because there's sometimes there's a little sidebar that TT will say, uh, or I'll say, and she'll say, okay, into the microphone, you know, because you just get kind of relaxed, uh, but you still want to, you know, so there, there's a lot of dynamic there um, where I had to really uh, keep myself in front of the microphone because I'm a hands and I'm a body movement kind of talker. <laughs> <laughs> and TT helps me stay centered. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's troublesome when the hands bang on the mic or something hits on the table and it's, oh no, that's going to, that's going right. to show up yes. in the audio. <laughs> All these things that you learn. The, the friendship between you two, obviously relates to one of the issues that you've touched on already in the third semester um, in the What About Your Friends episode. So I just thought we could just give people just a taste of 
uh, what that episode is about. So could you explain the, the concept of big friendship uh, and why you wanted to, to create that episode? So big friendship is a term that was coined by um, Aminatou So and Ann Friedman. They're the hosts of the podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. And they just came out with a book um, that is titled Big Friendship. And we knew, we've known since, since semester one that we wanted to do an episode on friendship. And when we read their book, or we, we were given access to their book ahead of time. We we're like, this is, this is perfect. This is going to be a great episode about friendship because we know that friendship is a very complicated space and that there's a lot of emotions and psychology behind it. So we said the psychology of friendship would be really, really interesting to talk about. Um, so we brought in a friendship expert, a psychologist, Dr. Marissa G. Franco, to kind of talk to us about adult friendship and the things that uh, go into adult friendship, adult friendship conflict, um, and how to resolve conflict with your friends. Um, because when we think about friendship when we're kids, it's it's very easy. You know, you go to the playground, you hang out, you guys, you know, color together, play games with each other. But then when you're an adult, there's, there is no playground. Um, <laughs> the, there's no coloring. And all it's that funny, fun stuff funny. is... <laughs> exactly. And so it becomes more complex. And the way that our, I feel like our global society treats friendship is as it's just, oh, this is just my friend. So you don't have to give it that much weight. But after talking to Dr. Franco, we realized that friendship should be given a lot more. What's the word I'm looking for, Z? Uh, weight, credibility. Prestige. Yeah, there should be more credibility given to friendship and that folks should really look at their big friends as Aminatu and Anne say, and say, I value this friendship so much and it's so important to me and it has helped make me who I am. And talking about all the, the intricacies of adult friendship. Yeah, I thought it was a brilliant episode because like you touched on, um, just as a culture and as a society, we, we do have these kind of models around how we should behave in like romantic relationships, but it does kind of end there. And then when conflicts do arise in, in friendships or friendships peter out, you, you are in this weird space where you're like, well, I don't know what, what am I supposed to do here? What's the right way to approach this? And everyone just kind of models through. But I thought that episode was great because it really, it did shine a light on something that we don't give much thought to uh, collectively. Yeah. I mean, because in the movies and the TV shows, you... If you go through a rough patch with your romantic partner, you show up in the rain, you both stand in the rain and you're crying <laughs> together, you hug, you say, I love you. But when you have conflict with your friend, no one shows up in the rain, but you you can show up in the rain. You can cry together in the rain. Don't know if I'll be doing it anytime soon, but I, it's good to know that <laughs> it's an option. Uh, it is, it is. It is. Don't yeah. count it out. Yeah. <laughs> so TT, you also co-host a music podcast called Dissect with Cole Kushner. Uh, and we could really do a whole other episode on that by itself. The level of detail and the depth of research that goes into that show makes my head hurt just kind of thinking <laughs> about it. Um, so before we move on to just kind of lastly talk about some bigger issues about science and society, could you just tell us about Dissect and how you got involved as a co-host? Yeah, so Dissect is a podcast that's hosted by Cole Kushner. He has done five, well, this is, we just completed the sixth season, but he's done five seasons um, on his own where he takes an album and then he dissects each song, um, each, for one song per episode. 
Um, for this season, he dissected Beyonce's Lemonade visual album. And so he brought me on to talk about some of the social uh, aspects of being a Black woman in America and to kind of contribute my perspective to the research and to the dissection of Lemonade. It was a really great opportunity. Uh, Cole, I, we met Cole um, in California at uh, a Spotify event. And then he yeah, reached we out to me. Yeah, we were talking about SoundUp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking about SoundUp. And then he reached out to me and was like, hey, uh, I'm looking for a co-host. Is this something that you would be interested in doing? And I said, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I had never done anything like this before, but I saw it as a great opportunity to uh, use my scientific brain, but in a different way to do research on Beyonce and Lemonade, the visual album. And it was amazing. It was a really, really great experience. And um, I learned a lot <laughs> about not just uh, Beyonce, but music uh, theory in general. And working with Cole was really, really amazing. Yeah, that's you, you mentioned in your answer there that you used your scientific brain to apply it in a different way and that, that was one of the things that came across to me it's like this is almost academic in in the level of detail and the thought that is going into yeah i i just didn't even think it was possible to extract that much information from you know a single album but there you go it, it can be done uh cole's done a fantastic job with dissect one of the 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 last questions i want to touch on are two different kind of topics about science and society and the first one is about science and education and i've always thought that one of the the key skills we should be teaching kids in school is to vet the quality of the information that is being presented to you and err on the side of skepticism when you see kind of crazy claims floating about online and i think that's one of the most valuable skills you can have today if you can understand how to check check the the credibility of the sources that you're receiving information from um, but i'd be interested to hear from both of you uh on the way you think that we should be teaching science in schools or anything that could be improved about how we present science in the education system, because I think it has a tendency to switch a lot of people off and people just immediately assume this is not for me, it's not going to be any use and I don't want to pay any attention. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a... I think Zakia can speak to this really, really well uh, because she is, she's been a professor for years now and the way that she approaches science is so, so different. And I love it. I've sat in on I've sat in on some of her classes, and my mind is blown every time. So I'll let Zakia take this one. Mm. <laughs> I so TT already knows my so James. What's happening? Sometimes I get on my soapbox, and TT's already <laughs> setting it up. Uh, I've built right it already. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> you know, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, we really have to re envision and really think about what our end goal is when we teach science. So what's so important is information science. You know, I think we've kind of neglected that for a while, the ability to uh, look at information, dissect it, to see if it's um, credible. These are things that we haven't changed. We have the, the information landscape has changed so much in the past 50 years. There's not just one or two stations on television, three or four radio stations that you can listen to. Anyone can create and distribute information now. Um, and our, our curriculum hasn't caught up to that. 
that's the first thing <laughs> that I think. Um, and so you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, the second thing, thinking about science and education, you know, I'd love to see instead of us trying to drag our students uh, to the science, dragging the science to them, right? Tie the science to what's relevant. Tie the science to the things that they care about. I don't want to see another meme that says, you know, I learned algebra and I never use it again. You know, I don't want to see another meme. I want us to be able to show folks those direct connections. Um, and I think something that TT and I talked about when we thought about what we wanted Dope Labs to be was to think about science as a tool, right? So to think about the scientific method as a tool. So we're not so focused on content, but instead process, right? So process for vetting information, process for deciding, yes, this is the most rational approach. And I think if we can teach folks more of that, it makes the other parts around the content, you know, whether you're learning about uh, the mitochondria or whether you're learning about uh, what's something from engineering TT. <laughs> yeah. you know, like engineering mechanics learning. or structural engineering, bridges and things right. like that. Right. And so I think we're doing folks a huge disservice by saying this is the canon for biology and this these are the most important principles for engineering, but not tying them to things that they see in their everyday lives. So people feel divorced from the science. You know, so much of how we present science in the media really um, upholds these ideas that you must speak in this whole separate vocabulary. So we're using scientific jargon and that's how you lend credibility when, in fact, I think it should be the other way around. If you alienate listeners, you're not a great scientific communicator, okay? And and so I think if we can kind of turn some of those ideas on their head, we can kind of make some progress with educating folks broadly, not just those who are in the classroom. Um, but I think what we've seen, if anything, uh, on the worldwide stage um, for coronavirus, America has a long way to go as far as getting some, some buy-in, as far as our decision-making on a you know personal level uh, for individual decision-making, not just folks who are considering the scientific method because they're in a lab. You know, We want to show, we almost feel the responsibility to show folks how to be global citizens and that sci- the scientific method is part of that. Yeah, it is really important. And Dope Labs is a reflection of that. I think stripping away the jargon and making stuff relatable is really important. And in your answer, you, you touched on coronavirus and it just it does kind of shine a light on the fact that uh yeah there is a lot of i I don't know anti-science and personally uh one of the debates i struggle with uh relates to science and social media uh because i think platforms like facebook instagram and twitter on the one hand they're great because they allow us to find and discover uh shows like dope labs and there's loads of other great content out there but then on the other hand there's just this unending like fire hose of misinformation being pumped into online public spaces every second of the day and i think just a lot of people find that confusing so just as a last point i'd just love to hear your thoughts maybe zakia this is another soapbox moment again i don't know but, but <laughs> social media's impact on scientific literacy and understanding in, in society you know i don't think social media is any one way you know i don't think it's net, you know, good or is solely good or solely bad. I think there are a couple of things that people should consider when participating in social media. And and the algorithm bubble is the first of those. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're already consuming content in one way, uh the job of these platforms is to give you more of what you're clicking on, more of what you like. Um the other part of that is as scientists and as science communicators, we must change our paradigm for distributing information. 
so often it is fact first when what we know, <laughs> you know, if we're going to say that we're doing everything based on the data, what we know is that people uh, consume information and are tied to stories. So we need more storytelling for folks to get these, to get those facts across. No one's going to swipe through, you know, a deck of 10 graphs unless they're visually appealing or they really are like a cartoon or a narrative around them. And so I think what we need is a lot more scientists doing some storytelling or learning how to do it and then thinking about what makes a meme so memeable and how do I hijack those concepts to spread the truth? Um, right. And so, no, but there's not many places teaching that. <laughs> right. So if you're looking for someone to teach that, I'm your girl. <laughs> but Come no, I do here. think, but I do think um, those are things that we really should consider uh, when thinking about social media and pairing it with scientific information. We need to be just as, uh, I don't want to say cutthroat, but just as engaging as the misinformation is. Absolutely. This just make, makes the wheels in my head turn because it's just like, when I think about how a lot of people get their information, it's usually just from the headline. They don't even read the article. So you can put something that is murky in the in the uh, headline and bury the facts in the article because you're going to just bank on folks not doing their due diligence to get the right information. And so that's another thing that I feel like Dope Labs does really well is because we want to give people uh, agency and license and make them feel empowered um, when they go out into the world. So when something they get confronted with something that they don't feel like, oh, well, I don't know anything about this or this headline said this. We want them to question everything and look for more resources and everything like that. And so we take them on that journey in every episode of Dope Labs with us because a lot of time we're learning too. And so we say, what questions do we have? How do we get to the answers? And we do the work to get there. Mm. Yeah, I think question everything is an important motto to keep at the forefront of your mind, uh, especially on social media. I think, yeah, if we can adopt that attitude, just think about what is this saying and and where does it come from? Uh, We'd all be much better off. I'd like to thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, Is there anywhere people should go to connect with you and find out more about the other things you're involved in? Yeah, you can go to our website um dopelabspodcast.com you can follow zakia at z said so you can follow me at dr underscore t-s-h-o and you can follow dope labs on instagram and twitter at dope labs podcast amazing everyone go check those out it's been a real pleasure to speak with uh, fellow science communication enthusiasts uh, so thanks again i really enjoyed it thank, thank you, you so much james this was awesome Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with the other podcasters or aspiring podcasters in your life, or alternatively, leave it a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows to keep the algorithms happy. That's it from me, and I'll see you next time.